So when I think of George Harrison, two stories come immediately to mind. One of them is from a friend of mine who is a Catholic and a Universalist. Yes, these do things to coexist at the same time. He's been a Beatles fan and an incredibly strong Beatles fan since about the age of five. I think when the first time he heard was Here Comes the Sun, his parents played it for him. Ever since then, he's been absolutely in love with the Beatles. He sent out an email to all of us who are his friends within maybe ten minutes after he heard that George Harrison died. And he said he had this image that he was almost sure was absolutely correct, that George, on his way up to heaven, waved at John Lennon, who was in purgatory, because he was absolutely still there burning off his karma. (laughs) If you heard my message on John last week, I think you can agree with me that that's probably right on target. Second story is this. Martin Buber was a very famous Jewish mystic, the early part of the 20th century. He tells a story once that when he was still teaching in Germany, he was one of the lucky ones who was able to get out as a Jew before Hitler came to power. He was in his academic office, and he was in the midst of a kind of mystical reverie, so deep in his meditative communion with the holy, that he had a student come into his office. And the student was really wondering about his duty to the Kaiser, his duty to Germany, and was wondering whether he should sign up and enlist to fight in World War I. Buber was so deeply in this mystical reverie, self-contained within himself, that he doesn't even remember the answer that he gave to this young man who really sought out his counsel, who really wanted his perspective to help him with a truly difficult decision. Years later, Martin Buber heard that this young man did in fact enlist and was killed in battle. Buber reflected for himself that he doesn't know whether he could have changed the trajectory of this young man's life. But what he had known was that in his deep reverie, he had not been present with this young man who had sought out his time and wanted his perspective on this important decision. For Buber, this was a turning point. He started to develop what he called an ethical form of mysticism. It's common to so many traditions, but he had lost it somewhere along the way. Recognizing that the individual pursuit of our own enlightenment is missing something absolutely essential if we ignore the presence of other people in our lives. These two stories frame for me the meaning and the story of George Harrison's life and music. He is spiritually and personally my absolutely favorite Beatle. George is easy to love. As easy to love as John is difficult to like. He always played second fiddle and in fact younger brother when he died. That's what Paul McCartney said about George Harrison. He was always my younger brother and unfortunately if you know the story and very much the hierarchy of the Beatles, that's how George was treated. McCartney said begrudgingly to Lennon in 1969 about George's songs. He said, wow, they're getting to the point where they're just about as good as the songs we write. Sorry, Paul, you were wrong. Actually, from Revolver on in 1966, George was your peer. And I'm really sorry, Paul, but all of George's four songs, that's all you would give him on a double album, on the White Album, were all better than anything like Obladi Oblada. George was John and Paul's peer. Unfortunately, he was very, very conscious about his second-class status in the Beatles. He was a much lesser partner in their publishing company that put out all their songs, which is what led him to write sort of money-conscious songs like Taxman because he wasn't earning as much as the other Beatles. 
His beautiful song from Let It Be, I Me, Mine, all about the problem of ego. And, you know, there aren't too many rock stars who are known honestly to really wrestle with what it is to have an ego and how to try to balance out the demands of fame and the demands of a true spiritual calling. I Me, Mine, all about that desire, as George really had, that holy desire to shear ourselves away from just the identification with the small part of ourselves, the egocentric part of ourselves, the clingy part of ourselves. He said about I, me, mine, there's nothing that isn't part of the complete whole. And when the little I that we can be merges with the larger I to which we belong, then you are really smiling and you can really be happy. Well, his autobiography, I, me, mine, he was still so pissed off at John and Paul that he didn't mention John Lennon once in that entire hundreds of pages of writing. He still struggled with his ego still struggled with his second-class status, but at least at times he was open about his struggles. And actually, one of the things I love most about George is something that was missing. When the 60s turned into the 70s, one of the worst parts of rock and roll was this, the absolutely expected, the absolutely cliched wailing guitar solo. I love that in the last song, really the last song the Beatles ever recorded, the end, literally, it's you know the love you take, love you make, Paul's great lyric in that, the Beatles show off. There's like a 30-second Ringo drum solo, and then Paul and George and John exchange these little, like, four, eight-bar bursts of guitar solos saying, we could have done this if we wanted to, but we didn't want to. We were more about the craft of the song rather than individually we were about showing off. George was a quiet innovator. He had an economy of greatness that was befitting to his spiritual aspiration. If any of you remember, you know, the sound of the birds or any of the kind of power pop music that I grew up in the 1980s, so associated with 12-string guitar, that's George Harrison. He was the first rock and roller to really use the Rickenbacker 12-string guitar and bring a whole new depth of sound to music. He was, of course, the person who in Western music brought from his friend Ravi Shankar the playing of the sitar and the tabla, Indian traditional instrumentality, into Western music. He was an innovator, but a quiet one, not in the same way as Paul and not in the same way as John, although at the same time, he also liked to partake a little bit of other people's work. Perhaps you know that the song we just sang had a court case for, I think, about 15 years that, in fact, the melody had been taken right from He's So Fine. Eventually what happened is there was a I think a million and a half dollar settlement against George. Eventually he ended up owning the company, so it was all square. What you might not know is that taxman, his famous screed, which sounds really odd for someone who is a multimillionaire to be complaining about the tax rates. Although, please remember at the time that about the tax rate, the effective tax rate in Great Britain when he was writing that song was about 97.5%. It was very, very high. What you may not know about taxman is that it was based on the theme show Batman. Remember the dun 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 That was taxman. George, unfortunately, was known also as being really, really cheap. He was the last one to ever have to pull out the money and pay for anything. There's a story that once when he was out to dinner with a number of people, including the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, they all looked around at who was going to pay the bill. And George, finally, after about 10 minutes of them just expecting that, of course, they were the Beatles, of course, they would just take care of the bill for them. But no, they had to pay 
He lifted up the inside compartment of his sandal, pulled out a bunch of pound notes, and finally he was going to pay for dinner. Unlike the other Beatles in some way, spirituality and George's spiritual aspirations were not about celebrity seeking. They weren't about the cheap thrill. They weren't about doing what was fashionable. George had a spiritual aspiration that went to the very heart of who he was. It was the real deal. He was the one who motivated the rest of the Beatles to go and study with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Rishikesh in India, in that great center for spiritual learning and development. Eventually, well, actually what happened is Ringo left after a week because his stomach couldn't handle the spicy foods. Paul didn't really see the point. John and George hung on for a while until some of the other hangers-on with the Beatles, jealous of the fact that the Maharishi was getting so much of George and John's attention, started to say, completely erroneously it turns out, that the Maharishi was making passes at women who were there. John, perhaps recognizing so much of himself, projected onto the Maharishi, got completely pissed off and left. George, however, in years later, understood the truth and came to reconcile with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Although his path was different, ultimately not with the path of just only transcendental meditation, but with a true devotional path to the Lord Krishna. We heard that in the song. My sweet Lord. That was his path and he followed it from the late 60s all throughout the rest of his life. He maintained continuity in his spiritual identity. And I have to say of all the great albums that the Beatles did release after the Beatles broke up as solo artists, George had the most fitting. Perfectly, spiritually, historically seeming to sense how great it was and how great they were, but that everything must end, that wonderful title, All Things Must Pass. But he wasn't like John or Paul, who in their first solo albums wrote songs about how pissed off they were at each other. George's attempt was to recognize the passing of what was beautiful. And so he put together this amazing three-sided album about love and change, and acceptance, and death, and the spiritual devotion that could be found by living a life of true practice. Now, all of you can hear me now about this. If I happen to go soon, I hope it doesn't happen too soon, but I want the last song on All Things Must Pass. Hear me, Lord, I must have that played at my funeral. It is this absolutely incredible six-minute rock, prayer, poem, devotional statement. Hear me, Lord. I want that to see me out. <laughs> George had an amazing gift for writing songs that might have been about a person or a woman that he loved, but also could have been about Krishna, could, about, could have been the God of his understanding. The Beatles song, Long, 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 this huge hit, What is Life, if you all remember that one. You cannot tell, and I think George intended it that way, whether he was writing it about a person or whether he was writing it about his relationship with God. I love that in one of those great songs from, from uh, All Things Must Pass called Awaiting on You All, he was absolutely channeling Emerson or Thoreau or any of the great thinkers and teachers from our transcendentalist Unitarian tradition. What he's saying in these lyrics I'm about to read you is that we don't need a mediator. We can have the personal and immediate sense of the holy in our lives. 
He writes to people who still, unlike himself, had stayed within the Christian tradition, but he was a universalist, so he wanted to honor everyone's urgings how they could grow. He said, you don't need a passport, you don't need no visas, you don't need to denigrate or designate or emigrate before you can see Jesus. If you open up your hearts, you'll see he's right there. You don't need a church house, you don't need a temple, you don't need them rosary beads or those books to read. Just open up your heart. George's archetype and his spiritual path was as a mystic. Now, I don't want to oversimplify here, but I want to try and give you a definition that we can work with of mysticism. It is the desire and the cultivated practice of the experiential, not the theoretical, not the conceptual, the experiential awareness of the unity of all reality. It is the experiential awareness of the unity of all of life. George was very much in his singing and in his practice a Hindu mystic. I say that not vice versa. Not a mystical Hindu. I think for a true mystic, regardless of their tradition, the modifier is always the tradition and the mystical path is the base. One of the reasons for that is because in the mystical path, eventually, if you have any contemplative practices, if you have any yogic practices, we will recognize that all traditions are simply just fingers pointing to the moon. They are just paths. They are just paths pointing beyond themselves to that ineffable, ultimate reality. It is one of the reasons that George could sing with such integrity as truly a Hindu and a universalist. And he could say hallelujah in one chorus of my sweet Lord and also Hare Krishna. For him, it was about that process of shearing away the ego to get down to that place of true or real self. In the mystical path, if any of you have worked with these practices, we know that we might go from a place of defending our turf in life either individually, emotionally, or spiritually, religiously, to the experience of being on common ground with each other. Because just as mysticism transcends and transgresses the boundaries of our ego, and it is scary because of that, because I know I like to hold on to what I identify with, so does the mystical path transcend and transgress the boundaries of any doctrine or any dogma. It's one of the reasons that Thich Nhat Hanh, who we read every week here to guide us into our meditation, can say with absolute integrity in his wonderful little book, Living Buddha, Living Christ, that he has experiences of the Holy Spirit. He can say these are just fingers pointing to the moon. Why modern Catholic contemplatives like Richard Rohr or Thomas Keating can leave aside for a moment the exclusive focus just on Jesus as the Christ and talk about language of the source of light, the source of love, common to all. If you Google the word mystical or mysticism, I encourage you to do it. You will eventually, probably in the first page that you will get, get a whole variety of links of people attacking mysticism. One of the reasons that this is done is because they believe that mysticism is conceptually unclear. But I want to reverse that. I think that one of mysticism's great treasures in this life is that it teaches us that all our concepts about the spiritual life are ultimately inadequate to describe that ultimate state of reality. That we can get to the point where eventually our concepts about ourselves, about each other, about what we do believe or don't believe about God can all fall away and we can experience at the base of that 
a deep unity. I believe that spiritually the best thing that our world can be given, the best thing that any religious tradition might give to the world now is a kind of mature mysticism. We don't need more dogma. dogma. We don't need more doctrine. We don't need any more beliefs by people telling us they are true or false. I love that even Sam Harris, who some of you might know, who is not just anti-religious, but sometimes vehemently anti-religious. He gave a talk a couple years ago to the American Atheist Society, and Sam Harris loves to upset people regardless of who he's talking to. And so he went to the American Atheist Alliance, perhaps saying that he was going to mirror back all their anger towards organized religion. And he spent his entire 45 minutes proclaiming the importance of what he called the contemplative traditions with this wonderful phrase. They teach us about the plasticity of the human mind and the possibilities for our human happiness. He wanted to talk about the arts of our true awakening, whatever our path, whatever our religious path in this life. For George and for the Beatles, most of the others of them left it there. Paul took it a little bit further. John, you know, he liked to have affairs with everything in the world, so he didn't take it too much further at all. But for George, as for the rest of the Beatles, their first introduction to the world of mysticism were drugs. It was LSD. It was the first way that they thought they could expand their minds. But George, very early, very soon, in 1967, said in an interview, LSD is not the real answer. It doesn't give you anything. There are other, more special ways of getting high that don't require drugs. Yoga, meditation, contemplation. What George knew very early on as a young man is that you cannot, we cannot skip steps on the way to enlightenment. There are no easy fixes. We have to do the work. We have to work upon ourselves. Our willingness and our work matters. So I love that George could say early on, before even some people had started to experiment with drugs, perhaps because of the Beatles, that there are false promises in the world of getting high that will actually separate you from your spiritual aspirations and other people. This was a temptation that George was able to forego. But there was another temptation that was a little bit more at the heart of George, that's a little bit more troubling. At times he sounded like one of those who wants to love God so much because he distrusted the world so deeply. And he found that the world was too troubling a place. There was a kind of world weariness and almost cheap despair. One of my favorite George songs is called Love You Too. It's an amazing, almost sort of quiet, Indian-sounding song from Revolver. In which he talks about there are people walking around who will screw you in the ground. They will fill you in with all their sins you'll see. He had a sense that the world was oppositional to him. It was difficult to be a Beatle. Even more troubling, perhaps because of the association which he did not intend, but with Charles Manson, who he thought the White Album was written entirely for him. He had this song called Piggies, a song from the White Album, George's song, in which he talked about, well, just a whole bunch of middle-class people who were walking around completely unaware of themselves, completely unaware of the world, saying what they need, those little piggies, is a damn good whacking. There was a kind of immaturity and anger in George at times that you get a sense that what drove him to God, to the sacred, was what he did not like in other people. That, too, is a shortcut.
I love one of these favorite passages from one of the smallest books in the Bible, 1 John. They're perhaps taking a look at this in the earliest Christian communities and saying, what really matters to us? 1 John says this, those who say, I love God, yet hates their brother or hates their sister, is a liar. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Even a beautiful song, which I absolutely love, like While My Guitar Gently Weeps, amazing George song. You get the sense that he's standing above or aside. He says, I look at you all as if he's the one on high and all the rest of us are down below. I look at you all and my guitar gently weeps. Thank you for the condescension, George. We don't need it. To truly appreciate a mature mystical path. I'm going to share with you my absolutely favorite quote about the spiritual life. Its nature, its destination, its purpose, and its affect. I intentionally read this quote about once, sometimes even twice a year. I intentionally come back to it because for me, it is so very deeply true and also a way of responding to the false illusions of sometimes what people understand as spirituality. It's by Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun. She writes this. Spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain. We leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way on our own all the way to the top. At the peak, we have transcended all pain. The only problem with this metaphor of the spiritual life is that we leave all the others behind us. Our drunken brother, our schizophrenic sister, our animals who are in pain, and our friends who still suffer. Their suffering continues unrelieved by our own personal escape. But in the process, I think, of discovering our true nature, the journey goes down, not up. It's as if the mountain pointed to the center of the earth instead of reaching up into the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move towards the turbulence and we move towards the doubt. We jump into it, we slide into it, we dip a toe into it. We move toward it however we can. We explore the reality and the unpredictability of our insecurity. And we try not to push it away by escaping. If it takes years, if it takes multiple lifetimes, we will learn to be and let it be as it is. At our own pace, without speed, without aggression, we move down and down and in. Now with us move millions of others our companions in awakening from fear. At the bottom, we discover water, the healing water of compassion. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover that love that will not and cannot die. I think George recognized the meaning of this. In the early 70s, some of you might have remembered it was the first George picture of George I ever saw was my parents' multi-box, multi-album cover 
of the concert for Bangladesh. If any of you remember that. No one to that point had ever done a rock festival for anything other than their own enrichment. (laughs) Ravi Shankar, recognizing the tragedy, the human scale of the tragedy that was going on in Bangladesh, said, maybe I can raise thirty dollars or $40,000. And George said, no. Let me give my name to it. Let me bring in some friends like Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan. We'll see what we can do. And it was the first, at the time least hyped, and perhaps still to this time the best, of all the big star-studded benefit concerts. The depth of a mature mysticism is to know, even in our own quest for enlightenment or in our own peace, that to the sense we have peace, we are called to share it with each other and with our world. Not to run away, but to go down and in and out towards each other. The other side to a truly mature mysticism that George did understand and practice deeply before his death. Besides taking the sufferings of other people to heart, taking their pain seriously, is to take our own pain not so seriously. To learn to laugh a little bit at ourselves. To have some good humor. See, if as the mystics believe and I do think they're right. That if the self is ultimately just a part of something larger, not existing on its own, but a part of that ultimate reality, that one of the ways we can learn to take apart our ego is by laughing at our foibles. I love the Yiddish proverb that said, laughter is to the soul what soap is to the body. I love that the Buddha so often is smiling. I remember once with a friend of mine, I went to a Buddhist temple and we were looking at that Buddha smiling. I said, he's so enlightened, he's so peaceful. And my friend said, no, 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 no. He was much further down the path than I was at this point. The Buddha is smiling because his pancakes that he had for breakfast this morning are so wonderful. That's that sense that the small things matter and we can laugh at ourselves and we can take wonderful enjoyment and pleasure. Wonderful enjoyment and pleasure and learn to take ourselves not so seriously. That's what Chesterton was talking about. That's why angels of all varieties and all stripes can fly, because they have learned to take themselves truly lightly and can share their joy. Finally, one of my favorite George songs was released after his death, released posthumously. It's called Pisces Fish. And in it, he has learned to smile at the challenge of his fame. And at the challenge of his ego. He said, sometimes my life feels like it's fiction. Some of the days I feel really quite serene. I'm a living proof of all life's contradictions. One half's going where the other half has just been. And that he learns to laugh joyfully, not angrily, at the life that he has been given. Like John, George died relatively young. He died when he was 58 years old, not violently, although, as you might remember, in 1999, someone broke into his home and tried to kill him. And I love the fact that his wife rushed to George's defense and beat this guy with a a fire iron and saved George. In 2001, December 1st, a week before the anniversary of George, excuse me, of John's death, he died, peaceful and at home. His ashes spread like so many pilgrims before him. 
into the river Ganges in India. His family put out this statement. George left the world as he lived in it. Conscious of God, fearless of death, and at peace. Surrounded by his family and his friends. George often said, everything else can wait. But the search for God cannot. And the search to love one another cannot. I'll leave you with these words from Pisces Fish. George sang, and I'll be swimming until I can find those waters. That's the one unbounded ocean of bliss. It's flowing through your parents, sons, and daughters. But still it's such an easy thing to miss. I think George would sing to us, don't miss it. It's right here. Amen. May you live in blessing. God, Spirit, the many names we give to that one ultimate reality that binds us all together in our prayer. May we be thankful of those fingers that point the way. May we be thankful for those teachers who through their, through their own excellence and through their own folly, through their wisdom and through their ignorance, through the growth of their joy and the growth of their pain, allow us go deeper. Invite us to recognize that the call of this thing that we call a spiritual life ultimate, ultimately is connection. Connection to ourselves, connection beyond ourselves, connection between ourselves. And connection ultimately to that path all of us must walk to our mortality and what may lie beyond whatever its name. May we be gathered up in this spirit with these spirits of all those who come before us, all those who pointed the way. May we be grateful for George. May we be grateful for our teachers. Amen.